This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about the legacy of uranium mining within the Navajo Nation and greater Colorado Plateau area. It's a good show recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. The work around these abandoned uranium mines for the Navajo Nation, they took care of the physical problem, meaning the entrances overhang, that type. And they closed a lot of entrance to a lot of these mines. But when they did that, they did not address mine waste or left out, out in the open. And you can see remnants of so some of those uranium ore out. And some of those that I've seen, I've seen then some of them in the washes as well. That'll be a cause of concern for when it comes to environmental exposure or issues around public health. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Dr. Tommy Rock. Tommy is a former postdoc at the University of Utah. There, he studied the impacts of uranium mining and uranium exposure in tribal communities here in Southeast Utah and elsewhere. We talk with him about the long history of uranium mining on tribal lands and the unique exposure pathways that exist for those in tribal communities. We begin our interview with Tommy explaining the history of uranium mining on the Navajo Nation. Uranium mining actually started like around 1918. And it wasn't uranium mining that first started that. It was vanadium. People were looking for vanadium. It's like a, one of those trends where they thought vanadium was a cure-all. And people flocked to the four corners looking for vanadium. And one of the places that was mining Manumet Valley was over in Cane Valley. The other places in the Four Corners are in Sweetwater, Red Mesa area, the, a place called Tetra. Also in Red Valley and Cove area as well. Really started blooming in the 1950s, 50s, 60s. And that's when the atomic bomb happened and then transition to the Cold War with the former Soviet Union. That's the Cold War era. How big are these mines, and what do they kind of typically look like? Those mines, some of them are pretty big. I think the biggest one is like a mile, a mile long. And some are pretty small, like 10 yards circumference. Some of those mines, the inches are pretty small as well and some some of the inches are pretty big like and pretty wide like you can drive a truck through there and it gradually gets narrow as you go in further how many mines are in this area from that that historic mining that was happening for never nation there's about over a thousand abandoned uranium mine and on the EP side, on the regulatory side, that's 523 abandoned uranium mine. And how they came up with that is they'll have like a, a group of mines and 
count that as one one area, one site. But individually, it's like over a thousand. But even then, a lot of those mines are not documented, though. Some of them are still out there. Who owned these mines? A lot of those mines are old companies, and some of them were bought by other companies, and they're still around. But some of those mines that have have like former owners that just moved away and that, that company are no longer around. They call those Dorf, Dorf mines. And they have no ownership nowadays. A lot of these mines started happening in the 1950s, 1960s, like I mentioned before. And that was under the Atomic Energy Commission. And that agency has since been split up. They're like the organization that formed the Atomic Energy Commission a long, long time ago. And now for a lot of these Dorf mines, a taxpayer's problem nowadays, that will be under the Superfund law, uh, CERCLA, um, under US EPA. These mines are distributed across the reservation, correct? And what is their proximity to people living in that region? Uh, it all depends on the region and the location. Some of them are pretty close to the communities, like in Cameron, Church Rock, Monument Valley as well. So there's a lot of those uh, mines are actually pretty close to the communities. And there's still talk about um, cleanup, which the tribes and the federal agency coming to those meetings and understanding what's going on. Also, Department of Energy is involved, Nuclear Regulatory Commission is involved, Bureau of Indian Affairs, Indian Health Service as well, and Center for Disease Control. So all of those federal agency and the tribe are all working together in partnership to address the abandoned uranium mines on the Navajo Nation and each playing a role at different stages, especially when it comes to environmental health, public health, and um, exposure from uranium mines. And I should say former uranium mills as well, even though some of those have been cleaned up. Yeah, tell me, tell me about the conditions of these mines now. With the work around these abandoned uranium mines, for the Navajo Nation, a lot of those reclamation work was done by Navajo Abandoned Mine Lands. And they took care of the physical problem, meaning the entrances, overhang, that type. And they closed a lot of entrance to a lot of these mines. And for the open pit mines, they put a lot of the mine waste back at the bottom of the former pit. And they did the same thing with vertical mines, the mines that go inside mesas or rock face but when they did that they did not address mine waste or left out out in the open and you can see remnants of so some of those uranium ore out and some of those that i've seen i've seen then some of them in the washes as well that'll be a cause of concern for when it comes to environmental exposure or issues around public health uh, tell me more. And so you're seeing this exposed ore and 
and tailings is that what i'm understanding that has not been addressed when these mines are plugged up and so how does that then radiate and um, cause pathways of exposure to people and other living things some of those pathway exposures like some of them are around water soil plants animals and some of the research that i've been involved in we look at those like uh, we look at water soil plants and see where is it ending up what's happening now is especially from northern arizona with dr ingram's research team we look at sheep from cameron we look at different tissues in cameron loop area and as well as five sheep off the reservation which was our baseline we wanted sheep that were that are not near these abandoned uranium mines. So we got five sheep off the reservation, and we look at different tissues to see how much uranium were in each of these tissues. And so, what did the study show? It showed there's some uranium in some of these tissues that were elevated. Even then, when we say elevated, it just shows like increasing uranium. But when it comes to the maximum contaminant level in each of these tissues. There's still work that needs to be done to determine if there is a high or if that's a normal. So that, that that part is still going on to determine the, t- the toxicity level of each of the tissues, if it's safe or not. And so then tell me more about how that study relates to exposure to humans in these communities. The study that I'm talking about, we're talking about traditional indigenous food contamination. And we, we meaning Navos, we eat um, sheep a lot, mutton, and that'll be like another pathway exposure. This is the type of research that the community members want it done. They want to see that, and that's the reason why we did that research. And so where, where were you um, testing for uranium within the sheep? We sample the stomach. Uh, we sample, I believe, the lung as well, the kidney, the liver, the intestine. We eat those, the meat. We also got some sample of the wool and the hoof as well. We were looking at ways of analyzing the, the wool and the hooves and, and instead of butchering the sheep, like to look at the hooves and the wool and see if we can find ways to see the toxicity level of a sheep rather than just by breaching it. So I hope my former mentor find a way to do that soon. So that'll be really cool to read about. And now they're duplicating that research over in Red Valley Cove area. And that's, that's going to happen soon. So I'm really looking forward to seeing those, those results. That'd be really good to look at. And then can you explain a little bit more about the pathway of exposure through water? Water seems to be the most common way of pathway exposure. Well, for Navajo Nation, we have a um, lack of public water infrastructure. And for a lot of the community members that live in rural area that live the traditional way of life, they don't have running water. And at times, they have to go to these unregulated water sources. Like when I say unregulated, mean what I mean by that is like windmill, hand pumps, springs, um, and they'll get water from there for human consumption. 
And a lot of the times, those unregulated wells are not, the water quality are, are not looked at. So some of those waters have elevated level of uranium. When you use a safe drinking water rack, some of those exceed the MCL, maximum contaminant level for uranium for human consumption. For the research that I was involved in, we see the, some of these cases, but the one that we see that's most common is arsenic in a lot of cases. And we didn't sample for waterborne bacteria, we didn't sample for like pesticides or oil, we just mostly concentrated on uranium and arsenic. And are you seeing um, the results of these pathways of exposure being evident in human health? I believe there there is. In some of the community members, some of the older community members that live near these wells, yes, there, there are. And the community members can talk about that. They'll talk about their siblings, their family members drinking from that water source, and they'll talk about their family members passing away of cancer, like um, stomach cancer and what have you. And when we sample the water, we'll, we'll see elevated uh, elevated level of uranium in the drinking water source. Some of these cases are just natural uranium. There'll be no uranium mining nearby, and we will see that. And these are uranium that are naturally occurring. And back then, a lot of people didn't know a lot about heavy metals and didn't know a lot about how that can be related to public health or health. So now that is changing, which is which is really good. And a lot of the elders, they see that even though they don't have a Western education, they they see it through observation. You can call that um, indigenous science. Are these problems of exposure um, to heavy metals through these different pathways, are they disproportionately occurring on the Navajo reservation, or did these same issues impact other Native or rural non-Native communities? I know it's impacting Navajo, and... Some of the folks that I talked to from other tribes, that seems to be the problem as well in other tribal communities. And and even some of the people that live near some of the uh, reservation or away from reservation that have their own water source. So yeah, I would say yes. For natives, we, we use the environment a lot more um, like plants we use for medicine, the plant we use for ceremony. By doing that, we get more exposed to a lot of these environmental contaminants. And for the regulatory agency, I think they need to understand that side or know that and help address that as well, doing collaboration with tribal communities. I know that traditional ecological knowledge is one of the terms that that is being used more now in some of the regulatory work. I know I've seen that from US EPA from Region 9. And I know for each um, US EPA offices, they differ. So I would say that it all depends on each region 
if they're using it or addressing it in that way. Are there things going on or could there be more things going on to reduce these pathways of exposure? Yes, there could be a lot more that's going on. When I'm talking about uranium and Navajo Nation, I know it's just not just a, a Navajo issue, but other tribes are impacted the same way as well. Like um, the Pueblos, like um, Laguna, Akuma, and Havasu, Pai, Hopi, San Juan, Paiute, and Northern Rapaho, or Wind River Reservation, the Lakota Nations. So yeah, there are other tribes that are being impacted. And I believe... In the western U.S., there's about 15,000 abandoned uranium mines. A lot of them are near tribal reservations. And they're not being addressed at the moment. And which it should be when it comes to hard rock mining as well. There's a lot of them out there. I would hate to see another incident such as the Gold King mine spill happening again somewhere else. And what can be done to address these pathways of exposure i think a good way to start is by uh, educating ourselves and and the people that know is like educating um, people uh, not just their uh, indigenous community but the general public as well also creating allies addressing it and coming together and creating or developing policies around it like clean up the mines i know the Lakota, I call her my grandma, Charmaine, she was leading the Defenders of Black Hills related to clean up the mines, helping her getting these policy passed will really help when it comes to clean up the mines, um, clean up the uranium mines particularly. What is your sense of why these haven't been cleaned up already? You U.S. have a bad history when it comes to minority especially when it comes to environmental issues, environmental exposure. You can see that in cases like Flint, Michigan, the majority of the population were, were African-American, and and they're still facing that problem as well. And you've seen cases of environmental racism, which is a term used a lot when a lot of these environmental exposure happen in minority communities. Trying to have the playing field be be the same would be a great way to start addressing a lot of these environmental exposure, environmental health issues, which all relate to public health as well. Are there issues of population density that come into play when when how these funds and cleanup efforts are allocated? Yes, yes, it does. Um, for Navajo. We don't have like a really big population in a lot of those um, communities. When it comes to CERCLA, uh, the Superfund law, uh, it won't be applicable. And since they're not applicable, they won't be on the national priority list for cleanup. And that's an issue. If that's happened to my tribe, it'll be happening to a lot of tribe as well when it comes to CERCLA law or Superfund law. When it comes to Native community, that circle law needs to be modified, which has happened for Navo in this case when it comes to cleanup. How is the EPA and other federal agencies who are in charge of cleanup for these kinds of 
Superfund-esque sites. What has been their response to um, the work that you have been involved in? They've been supportive, and that's really great. Also, there's been time where we where we uh, bump heads, such was the case over in Sanders, Arizona. That wasn't just USCPA. That was Arizona Department of Environmental Quality as well, where the public water was contaminated for numerous years, and so was the elementary and middle school. And we're trying to tell the regulators that it's a public health issue. It's a chronic exposure. My colleague, Chris Shui, Jacques Cerrone, we call in and we'll have these conference calls and they won't budge and say, no, they're fine, they're fine, they can drink that. It's, it's not a problem. Even though the law states that under the Safe Chicken Water Act, it's uh, an issue. And nothing was nothing was done until NBC News got hold of it. So yeah, it's uh, it's problematic when it comes to minorities, when it comes to environmental exposure. Typically, when I'm doing science out on you know federal lands, I just need to go to those regulators and get a permit, and then I can go and do my study. But from what I understand, the process that you went through to do this work was different. Can you? talk about what the process was for being able to even go do this work um, within your community? Um, a lot of stuff that I do involves community-based participatory research and involving the community and educating them as well. And not only educating them, but they'll be educating me. And when I do a presentation, they'll correct me in some of my presentation. And since I'm Navajo, I, I speak my language. I'll be talking about it in Navajo, and if they don't understand it, I'll go go through it with them again. And sometimes they say, "Say it this way, it sounds better." It's like it, it it comes through a lot better. So I'll do that. So when I do that, they'll understand the process. They'll understand what's going on. They'll understand what to look for or um, where these contaminations are. And for the stuff that we did um, with the Sanders stuff, it was environmental justice grants. With uh, it was funded by um, USCP from Region Nine. Um, it was a Chilani Lake Enterprise project, and I I led the the science. And Chris Shui was involved, Jacques Rowan as well as as well as Janine Yazi, and. We had these two-day um, workshop where we educate them on how the coordinates was important, getting these GPS coordinates, how that can be used, what they mean, and educate them about longitude, latitude, different maps, and why that was important, and I, how you can get these raw data and put into GIS format and how you can use that to do your work and also educating about the Safe Chicken Water Act, the Clean Water Act, also educating about water quality and how it relates to public health. We did all of that. And I wrote up the quality assurance plan for that project and I showed them 
why we need to do it this way in each of these sampling will be done the same way every time and show them why that was important. We show them how to do water sampling and the reason why we do it that way. So we show them all of that and then we went to the community and sampled the water. In return, they'll ask me questions. I gave them my, my number and they'll be like, hey, tell me, it's like, what does this mean? How does this work? And so I really enjoy that. I really enjoy teaching them. When they're in the presence of some of these regulators, they can ask questions. And when they throw these jargons, like, they'll understand what they're talking about. They will understand that and they will speak up for their community as well. And I think that's a way of, for me to give back, but also to help other tribe as well. And hopefully some of the younger generation will get inspired and not only get into science, but address some of the concerns that they see in their community, like just showing them that getting an education and giving back and helping their community is a, it goes along with a lot of our teachings from traditional ecological knowledge. How did you get started on this work? For me, it was a personal journey. My grandfather, my late grandfather, he had cancer. When I first started, I was thinking just myself and my relatives. Then realized it was my community. Then the more I did the work, the more I became aware it, was, it wasn't just my community, but my tribe. My relatives were involved in some of the uranium work as well. They were affiliated with one way or another. I started to really focus on it and trying to address it and help and put in my two cents, so to speak, when it comes to uranium exposure. In doing so, I got a chance to understand it from the research standpoint. I got a chance to learn it from the community standpoint and from the grassroots and to the regulatory side. And it really helped me to really focus on this type of work or this work. Uh, What do you find most rewarding and enjoy about being a scientist and doing this work? A lot of the stuff that I was talking about, it sounds pretty sad, depressing, but the community that I work with over in Sander, helping them get new water, better water quality, that was really good. That was working with Rex Kuntz on that as well. And with a team, with my colleagues, seeing that the work we did helping change the laws and, and addressing the small public water system in the state of Arizona. That victory goes a long way, and it's a really awesome feeling. When I first heard about what just happened and what we did, I was a PhD candidate at the time, and when we did that, and I learned about that, and I was walking through campus, and I was like, heck yeah! And people gave me this funny look, and I was like, it really made my day. I was like walking really high for a while, and I was like, heck yeah! I was like, just knowing that we did that, that's... That's pretty awesome. And it also gave me hope as well. Hope that even though we're against some of these big corporations that have the money, we can still do this and slowly chip away at it. And how we're still resilient as well, regardless of what has happened and what's happening. We're still at it. We're still here. We're still fighting. Well, Tommy... Thank you so much for this interview. It's been amazing to hear about your work and your community. And um, yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. To listen to this interview with Tommy Rack again or any of our past shows, visit sciencemoab.org, kzmu.org, or anywhere you get your podcasts. 
Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hutchkins, and KZMU.